The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer and the booker for the podcast, and we have been doing this podcast for five years plus on a weekly basis. Today's episode is episode number 264, and we hope that we offer you hope and also some options for help if you or someone that you know is addicted. That's really our whole purpose is to push people to get help before it's too late because we all know that oftentimes addiction can end in tragedy and we'd like to avoid that if possible. Don't forget to please listen, uh, subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating so that Google will point people in our direction. Also watch our YouTube channel if you like videos. All of our interviews are videoed and um, give us a thumbs up, subscribe, and if you want to be notified when we have new episodes that we put up, then also ring the bell and you'll get a notification. Today we have an interview with a gentleman named Michael Brown. Now after college, Michael was assigned to the DEA in Detroit. He was in the Michigan Field Division office and he participated in several high-profile narcotics investigations and later volunteered for the first DEA Detroit Field Office Mobile Enforcement Team as the primary undercover agent and liaison officer with local and state law enforcement agencies. He became a ranger and he also worked closely at one point with the Bolivian counter-drug special forces. He also did assignments in Pakistan and also, he worked in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, acting as the principal training officer for the Haitian Counter-Drug Maritime Unit. He now works for a private company. It's called, I, th- I think I'm saying it's right, RIGAQ, R-I-G-A-K-U, RIGAQ Analytical Devices. He's the director of Counter-Narcotics Interdiction Partnerships. Rigaku is the leader in the development of specialized counter-narcotics analyzers for the identification of unknown substances. He is going to talk to us kind of from a former DEA officer's viewpoint in terms also of what he's doing now. He's going to talk about fentanyl and how that is affecting the whole drug addiction pandemic and also some ideas he has for prevention. So without further ado, Let's talk to Michael Brown. Michael Brown, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and taking the time to share your experience with this whole drug addiction scene that we have going on here in the country. Well, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. This is definitely a very important issue, uh, especially now. Yes, exactly. Michael, I want to obviously focus on your professional background because that's what kind of gives you you know, gives you, has given you the experience that you have, but, but tell me also, where did you grow up? What was your life like when you were a kid? A little bit of your personal background. Sure. You know, the personal journey started off in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. My parents recently moved from Philadelphia to Cincinnati with a job promotion for my father. Uh, he worked for a large pharmaceutical company. Um, so, you know, upper middle class, uh, Catholic school, St. Ignatius, uh, grade school, then uh, LaSalle High School, um, and then University of Cincinnati, where I studied uh, urban administration and planning, 
and had all the intentions of going to law school and then becoming a city solicitor working in city government. But that plan got interrupted with a career with the DEA. And and what what interested you about that? Why did you go into that? You know, it's a funny story. I was working um, in store security for a large retail store in uh, Cincinnati then called um, McAlpin's. And, uh, you know, I really had no uh, experience in, in law enforcement. I was just doing this to pay for school um, to kind of get through, uh, you know, college. Uh, you know, I found it very interesting. I was working as plainclothes store security manager, um, basically catching shoplifters, everything from the, you know, the 85-year-old grandmother to organized crime groups that were stealing, you know, millions of dollars in, in merchandise every year. And I found it uh, fascinating. I had an opportunity to work with the Cincinnati police, the Cincinnati prosecutor's office. I testified in court and worked with the Cincinnati police on crime reduction strategies. Uh, one day after making an arrest, one of the uh, officers came to pick up the detainee. And he, he was like, Mike, you know, you're really pretty good at this. Um, have you ever considered a career in law enforcement? Of course, you know, my family's direction for me was, was law school. Law enforcement was the farthest thing from their mind. And I said, well, I really don't know much about, you know, being a police officer. He says, well, I work with uh, DEA uh, attack force. He says, you ever looked at DEA or FBI? And I said, yeah, I didn't even know what DEA was. This was like 19, 1989, 1988. It just wasn't in my, my, my view. And uh, this happened. It was a Sunday. I went home that Sunday. And I was watching 60 Minutes. And it was a 60 Minutes special on DEA in South America doing an operation called Snowcap. And these were DEA agents jumping out of helicopters, raiding drug labs, burning drug labs, airstrips, hands-on, very aggressive. Um, in order to go to that program, you had to go to the United States Army Ranger School in Fort Benning, pass their program, and then you deployed to South America where you had police on the ground. And I was like, that is what I want to do. Wow. Um, so, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, a rude awakening, but a, a pleasant one. Okay. So I went down to the DEA recruiter's office the next Monday on my way to work. Um, it was a, the manager, a resident agent in charge of uh, Cincinnati office was a guy named Herb Warren, fantastic uh, individual. Uh, he brought me in the office, sat me down and uh, gave me an interview. And he says, uh, you know, we talked a little bit and I said, you know, I'm, I've just graduated college a few months ago and I'd really be interested in, in pursuing a career with DEA. He says, well, I'll tell you what. Um, you're wearing a tracksuit. You're not really dressed for an interview. So why don't you come back and we'll do a proper interview? He says, when you can, and my hair was a little longer then. I had like this little ponytail in the back, right? Kind of looked like a shoplifter. And he's like, and when you come back, make sure you have a suit on and that ponytail is cut off. Ah, okay. <laughs> so I came back a few weeks later, did the interview. Um, fast forward, uh, someone in the academy had dropped out. I got a call a couple weeks later. says, hey, if you want to go, you've got, you've got a week, pack a bag and, and you can be in the academy course, I told my mother, a career change, packed a bag, going to DEA Academy. She's like, what's DEA? Right. No idea. And so <laughs> then the rest is history after that. Wow. Wow. You jumped in with both feet. Both feet deep in. So you, you worked there in that area. You were in Detroit. Is that, Correct. Getting, that was my okay. first posting was Detroit, Michigan. Okay. So you're in Detroit, but um, you... What did you see when you were in Detroit that maybe you didn't know before getting into the DEA? Well, I had no idea on drugs, drug trafficking, addiction. Um, you know, where I grew up in Cincinnati, that just wasn't a topic of conversation. You never saw it completely isolated. Uh, my first day on the job, I showed up, you know, had my blue suit on, my black shoes. I was getting ready to sit down and do some reports. 
boss comes out and says, hey, we're going to go arrest uh, some arrest warrants for some Crips, a uh, drug trafficking organization that was working in one of the inner city locations in Detroit. Um, so went out, put my, my vest on with my senior partner. We went out and we, we did arrests, right? I'm running down the streets of Detroit in a suit with uh, Johnson Murphy shoes on, best thing to wear. And we're making arrests, um, doing what I had trained to do. But then the downside of that job was I saw the, the addiction, right? Mm -hmm. I saw how drugs were affecting people, especially in the African-American community. Detroit, you know, it's largely an African-American city. And so I saw the law enforcement side, right? The, the, the criminals, right? The, the crips, the bloods, the drug traffickers. But then I saw the victims, literally right next to where they were selling drugs. You saw the victims. You saw the, the desperation, um, hopelessness. Uh, and it was almost a situation where we just couldn't, couldn't solve it. The more people we arrested, the more people would come and sell drugs, the more people would use drugs. We saw the crack epidemic, right, when I was in, in Detroit, which simply devastated uh, the inner city community. So being an agent, I got to see both sides. Unfortunately, my job was to work on the enforcement side solely, right? My job is to investigate, identify, prosecute, and, and uh, send drug traffickers to jail. I didn't have really any work or firsthand experience working on the harm reduction side. Right. You know, there are other agencies that were supposed to take on that, that responsibility. But when we could, we tried to work in conjunction with the community, with church groups, you know, having people work with us and to uh, build better strategies for the inner city communities. I would think you would have to do something along that line, especially when you see the hopelessness of the addicts themselves, because you, you can't law enforcement your way out of that situation yes you can get the drug traffickers and you know and the major dealers but the guys who are addicted i mean they need they need help and i can i can understand that that's an area you would at least dabble into as much as you could so okay so that was what was happening in detroit but you still had a desire to go down and jump out of that helicopter well exactly if, that yeah. was one of the reasons i joined the DEA <laughs> was to to go to the source of the problem right? To work in countries where drugs were being produced because that is the center of gravity, the epicenter of the entire drug problem. Right. Um, so really within, um, I had just joined, I was what we call GS7. I was a junior agent. I had to spend like a year or so on the job and then I applied for that operation. So I applied, I went down to uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. I went through an assessment for U.S. Army Ranger School, successfully passed that and then joined the Ranger training program for almost three months. So after the rainy training program was completed, I then went to Spanish language school for about six months. And then I deployed my first deployment down to Bolivia, a small cow town called Trinidad, where I worked with eight DEA special agents in conjunction with a Bolivian special forces um, called the UMAPAR. And they were tasked with going out into the jungles, locating drug labs, um, going after fugitives, and basically a search and destroy mission to kind of crush or significantly degrade the ability of drug traffickers to produce narcotics. Wow, super dangerous job Yeah, it, there, it, it definitely could be. Of course, working in the jungle, everything that looks good can kill you. Yeah. Right? From the snakes, the plants, the flies, and of course, drug traffickers who are shooting at you. So. Wow. What was the main drug that was being exported out of Bolivia? Of course, at that time, um, Bolivia, and today is one of the largest producers of the coca plant. Uh. Right, so they were producing coca, coca base, which could then be refined into cocaine. So generally the coca okay. base was flown out of Bolivia to drug labs in Colombia and Peru. So our goal was to degrade the capability of those organizations to produce coca, coca paste, 
and then transported out of the country. Okay. Fair enough. How long did you do that? How long were I you I did that for there? approximately four years. I did four tours, two in Bolivia, and I did worked in Guatemala and Honduras as well. Okay. And if I, if I recall what you said, that's you're, you were in the Army, basically. No, not, no? not necessarily signed up for the Army, but certainly doing the work that you would see Army or Special Operators do. I got it. Central and South America. I got it. And that was the training, I thought you said, was Army training? Yeah, Army training, okay. Ranger Special Forces training. Yes. Okay. And what year was that that you, or what years was that that you were down there? Um, I think that was roughly 92 through 94. Okay. In 95, when the program was ended, 95, 96. Okay. And then you came back um, to the States, uh, I presume, and where were you working then? What was your next area? Yeah, back to Detroit. The way the deployments worked, you deployed for three months, go back to your home base, which was Detroit for me for three months, do investigations. So I did that on and off for approximately four, four and a half years. But then once the program concluded, I went back to Detroit and uh, went back to my investigative duties until 1999, where I volunteered and went to Islamabad or Lahore, Pakistan, to uh, work in our foreign operations offices. Because, because Pakistan is a center also for for drugs coming in. Afghanistan at that time was the world's largest producer of heroin. Okay. So we were working with the Pakistani uh, police and investigators on identifying Pakistani drug traffickers, Afghani drug traffickers who were shipping heroin globally, Europe, United States. Um, helping them with their reduction strategy. Okay. Back to what you said. You said when that operation down in Bolivia was was over, was it done? I mean, were they, did you, I mean, who decided it was done? Well, the, the main problem is it was too successful. We uh, get operations in in Bolivia, in Trinidad, Chimare, um, and we had operations in Colombia and Peru, all attacking the epicenter of drug production. It was extremely successful. Okay. The problem was just too successful. The Bolivian government decided this is not what we really want. So they began to restrict our airspace, saying you can only travel to these areas, like you know, area B and C, and you can't go to D and F, with D and F are where the drug traffickers were. Wow. So we were going to areas we'd already cleared, uh, and we couldn't go to the areas where the drug traffickers had migrated to to avoid our, our operational parameters. Wow. As you know now, Bolivia pretty much closed down the U.S. Embassy, kicked DEA out a long time ago, as well as Venezuela. Because we were doing too good of a job in identifying and highlighting, right, highlighting the the center of gravity, where the problem is, who are the individuals behind the global drug trade? Wow, wow! So it gets very political. It goes yeah. from law enforcement into politics, and I think you're seeing that now play out in Mexico, Afghanistan, all the major drug producing countries. It's very political, and it's beyond the capability of law enforcement then to have an effect. Right. What are the epicenters today? Where, where are the drugs mainly coming in from today? Well, for you the United States, it's, still, right? it's Mexico. Well, you, you have to split it kind of into two halves. For the okay. United States, it's Mexico. Mexico is a primary producer of methamphetamine, heroin coming into the U.S. Then Colombia, of course, is still the king of cocaine into the U.S. and global distribution. And then you have Afghanistan, now the world's largest producer, always the world's largest producer of heroin. That's primarily going into Europe as well as its methamphetamine production. Then you shift to Southeast Asia and you go to Myanmar, where I worked for two years. Myanmar is the world's largest producer of methamphetamine. It's primarily a source to Australia and Southeast Asia. Wow. It's such a global problem. It, uh, yeah. Okay. So what is the, what is the biggest, well, 
I don't want to take you off of your your track in terms of what you know where you were and what you were doing. Give us just a little bit of what brought you to where you are today. Like, what were your last few jobs? You said My, Pakistan. Um, I spent almost 13 years uh, working overseas. I really found that I had a knack for working in a foreign environment. I really enjoyed working with the counterparts on large and strategic planning. Right? Strategic planning and implementation seemed to be what I was uh, excelling at. So I worked in Pakistan for almost 10 years. Um, I was in Afghanistan after 9-11 working with the 101st Airborne. Um, when we went into Kandahar, uh, I then spent some time, I was country attache in India, where I covered Southeast Asia. I spent some time in Central Asia working in, in Tajikistan and Dushanbe. And my last overseas post was in Myanmar from 2018 to 2019. I spent almost two years there working with the Myanmar police on degrading the precursor chemical supply chain that was fueling the methamphetamine production in Myanmar. So... Um, and then after that, I went to headquarters, the headquarters in Washington. Um, you know, at that time, I was like 56, 56 years old. And with DEA at 57, a mandatory retirement. They oh. push you out into the street. Right. So uh, I said, time to go back to Washington, get some managerial experience in headquarters. You know, I worked there for roughly two years in strategic planning, working with the Transnational Organized Crime Task Force associated with the White House's um, directive to identify and degrade the strategic threats posed by drug trafficking groups in the United States. Wow. You're, you have an amazing career, Michael, and you have an amazing ability to confront the bigger scene that exists today in terms of drug addiction and drug trafficking. And that, I mean, thank you. For all the work no, you did. thank you as well for the support. I mean, it's it's a team effort. I've been very fortunate throughout my career to have had the opportunity to work domestically in the inner cities, communities, and then to work overseas, and then to work in the embassies and see how the politics works. Because you know, until you really have that three hundred and sixty viewpoint, you know, drug trafficking, it's just not police on the streets. It's it's politics. It's governments. It's procedures. It's trade. Right. Um, it's a lot of different issues go into that, that very complicated formula. And that's so unfortunate that it becomes a political issue because drug addiction is not a political issue, in my opinion. No, they're casualties. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so you you had to retire, um, which I think is a, is, a, is a huge shame because somebody who's been through what you've been through, I think, well... Anyway, we could get into the subject of mandatory retirement when they take the best people who have the most experience and retire them and bring in the new people who may or may not want to be there and don't have any experience. But anyway, okay, so you had to retire. What then? Well, you know, fortunately, when I was in Myanmar working with the police on their problem, when I first arrived there in 2018, I said, what's your, what's your major problem? How can I help you? They said, look, our problem is methamphetamine production. Now, you have to understand the history of Myanmar, Last 60 years, Myanmar has been involved in a civil war with about 12 to 13 what we call ethnic insurgency groups. You got to forgive my ignorance. I don't even know where Myanmar is. Myanmar, Burma, right next to oh, Thailand. Okay. Vietnam. Okay. Thank you. Part of the Sorry. Golden Triangle. No, no, people ask me all the time. <laughs> um, you are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com 
or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. So within Myanmar, you've had these insurgency groups at war with the government for the last 60 years. One of the biggest groups is called the United Wa State Army. Um, so in order to fund the insurgency, these groups got into drug production, heroin. I don't know if you've ever saw the American movie, The American Gangster, with Denzel Washington. He was getting his heroin from the Golden Triangle in that part of the world. So those groups were funding their insurgency with the production of heroin, which they sold to the international criminal community. So fast forward to 2018, heroin production was being replaced with methamphetamine production because methamphetamine production is all synthetic, right? You don't need hectares of land, thousands of workers. You just need space, chemicals, and no Chemicals, yep. Exactly. So then chemicals became the center of gravity. And I looked at the Miramar situation and said, your problem is not drug production and trafficking. Your problem is precursor chemicals. You have precursor chemicals coming across your open land border in Musei, which is a city in northern Miramar along the Chinese border. So multi-ton quantities of chemicals were coming across that border. But the problem was the police didn't know, one, what was a precursor chemical, and two, how to identify precursor chemicals if it was mislabeled or not labeled at all. So I began to look at technology. I said, how can we resolve this problem? Because we can't, the police can't go into these drug areas because it's military combat zone, and they're not equipped, and they're not allowed. So the drug traffickers, if you want to call them drug traffickers or insurgency groups, had this umbrella of protection around them. Well, the military wasn't concerned about drug trafficking. They were concerned about civil war, right? The bigger agenda, collecting national security. So the drug traffickers got a pass. They could produce as much narcotics as they could. They just simply had to smuggle it out of the country. So looking at that problem, I researched a number of companies that produce um, instruments that uh, can identify chemicals using a laser, basically, the way this works. The, uh, the laser spectrometer, you, it's a handheld device. You point a laser at a substance, whether it's liquid or powder, and the laser will heat up those molecules and identify a fingerprint, basically telling you what that chemical is. Wow. So then I looked at the Rigaku, uh, Rigaku analytical devices. And Rigaku made a device called the CQL 1064 laser. 1064 is the highest level laser you can buy with this handheld device. Problem was the device was $50,000, state of the art. <laughs> Because I was just so going to say, to every police officer in the U.S. needs to have one, but not if it's $50,000, that's not going to happen. Okay. Then when you look at what it can do. Yeah. Right. So I, I looked at it. I went to my boss. I said, this is what I want to do. I put together a strategic program called Operation Viper, which was to equip and train the police with these devices so they could go out and attack the precursor chemical supply chain coming from China into Myanmar. Because that was the only vulnerability that was, was exposed to law enforcement, right? The open right. border, police checkpoints, 
the uh, the highway leading from the checkpoints into the insurgent areas were all vulnerabilities that the cartels could not protect. So right. that was our attack. So I started a pilot program. I was able to get funding for three devices. I brought over DEA uh, trainers to teach the police what were precursor chemicals. Then Ragak, who sent in their team to train the police on how to use the device. So after uh, a few months of training, the police went out. And in the first month, this is after I left um, Miramar, my tour was up. First month they went out, they went from seizing maybe a couple of liters of precursor chemicals to seizing seven metric tons in wow. the first month of using the device. Wow. Right? So they were seizing chemicals that they had no idea were precursor chemicals because within the device, you have a library of 13,000 different precursor chemicals, including what we call pre-precursor chemicals, chemicals that have multiple uses that could also be used like benzene or sodium cyanide to produce methamphetamine. So now the police had a device in which they could go out, and if uh, a shipment of, say, hydrogen peroxide, documentation says hydrogen peroxide, they examine that shipment, and it's actually benzene or sodium cyanide or theonyl chloride, precursor chemicals, boom, there's your probable cause to make the seizure. Right? Wow. The secondary effect, people that they arrested transporting these chemicals would say, oh, I've been transporting these chemicals for several weeks in this location in Miramar. Well, let's go take a look. And they would follow the uh, informant at that point with the warehouse full of tons of chemicals <clears throat> and methamphetamine. So the secondary effect of the technology was actual drug seizures before it went out of the country to Australia, Japan, etc. Wow. The program was so successful that the traffickers attacked one of the police stations, killed the police officer just to destroy <clears throat> excuse me, one of those handheld devices. And when the when you know, and the police have been seizing, you know, thousands of, of kilos of methamphetamine for years, but there was never any pushback because you could always produce more methamphetamine. But now you're taking the precursor chemicals, right? That's a major problem because your distributors in China are saying, hey, this is becoming risky. We're sending all these chemicals that are getting seized. You're not paying us. So we're going to have to charge you more money or restrict what we send you. Well, now we're talking about disturbing the supply chain. That affects the production of narcotics like any other industry. Right. Huge success. Wow. So wow. I retire. I come back to the United States. Rigaku, the president, Brie Allen, says, hey, you know, we really appreciate what you're doing in, uh, in Miramar. But we've never seen that application of our technology. We need someone who understands how to apply that kind of technology, develop strategies, and work with our foreign, foreign distributors, Colombia, Central America, South America, et cetera, who can help educate people on the use of this device. So they brought me on after retiring, um, the director of uh, counter-narcotic partnerships and, and strategic development. Wow. So that's how I got into Ragaku. And then once I got into Ragaku, I started looking at the application of the device. I said, well, I'm not working in Miramar anymore. How can this device be really used in the United States? So I started looking at harm reduction and these opioid um, prevention centers that were starting to pop up. I said, well, no one's really doing pre-screening with this kind of technology to identify that what the drugs are people could bring in and if there are deadly amounts of fentanyl in those drugs. So I designed a program called um, uh, Human Infrastructure Health and Awareness, HIA program, to implement the introduction of laser ramen pre-screening to identify lethal amounts of fentanyl and thus preserve life, preventing the overdose from happening. Right. So we're in the beginning stages of that program, trying to get the word out. 
I think currently most uh, these these centers, whether they're official or unofficial, are simply using fentanyl strips. It's a dollar it costs a dollar for the fentanyl strips. You get a 50-50 chance for the fentanyl strip, right? Okay. So we're saying with this technology, you increase that to maybe 75-80% uh, ability to better identify, number one, what's the substance that they're bringing in? Number two, is there fentanyl in it? Number three, preventing the overdose from happening in the first place. Right. What about using this machine, though, like at our borders to test for chemicals and drugs and such? Well, here's the thing. The, when drugs come into our country, they're already produced. So with the fentanyl oh. you're seeing coming in is already produced in these laboratories. But the, okay. the, the point of using these devices would be to work with the Mexican authorities at the ports and create inspection teams to then look at the data and figure out which containers we need to search. Because you have to understand, with the increased amount of fentanyl being produced, that means there's an enormous amount of precursors coming into Mexico right. from China, which the Sinaloa cartel or the New Jalisco generation uh, which is the new generation, uh, Jalisco new generation cartel are using to produce fentanyl and methamphetamine, which they then send into the United States. So what's okay. coming into the U.S. are bulk seizures, which are very easy to identify. But the point of, of, of mitigation should be where the precursor chemicals are coming in. And that goes for Colombia and Peru as well. Precursor chemical from these industries in China, it's a multi-billion dollar industry which nobody's really talking about. Wow. Wow. Okay. You segueing over a little bit into the email that you sent us with um, some ideas to talk about. Is, is fentanyl really the biggest problem that we're facing today? Is that really what you're seeing in terms of the drug problem in this country? I would say fentanyl is the, the biggest threat, national security threat uh, to the United States because of its addictive qualities and its, its ability to kill Instantly, right? If, whether you have, uh, whether you're a long-term drug user of 10 years, or this is your first time, uh, you take what you take more than one and a half milligrams, two milligrams of fentanyl, you're going to die, right? That's pretty much a certainty. Okay, but now when people are addicted to fentanyl, are they just doing a smaller amount? Is that why they don't die typically? Where's the thing? You know, when drug traffickers make, let's say, a million fentanyl pills, they're not measuring out. You know, let's put in like two nanograms. So you have a guy who's like, he, he's guessing, I'll throw a little bit here, a little bit there. So out of 40 million pills, 10 of those pills, 10 out of 40 are going to kill you. But you've got 40 million pills. So it's really a Russian roulette game, right? right? So if you're on the street and you buy that one fentanyl pill that's got too much fentanyl, you're going to die. So oh. theoretically, I think we're looking at 100,000 overdose deaths, maybe 60 to 70% are related to fentanyl, right? But think about if every fentanyl pill had a lethal amount. There'd be hundreds of thousands, 300, 400,000 people dead right, right. now. So I, I guess the only silver lining is that the individuals who are making the fentanyl aren't loading them all up because then that would obviously kill their, their distributing base. But I don't think they're concerned about that. They realize that a percentage are going to die. And we saw this with heroin overdoses, right, in the inner city community. A large number of people were getting bad heroin and they were dying. But the cartels figured, hey, if, if 10 out of, 10 out of uh, 100 people die, well, we're still making a lot of money. And people are still going to buy it. And we still see people buying fentanyl knowing that it could possibly kill them. That's right. the power of the addiction. But if 100% of it is too high, then they're going to lose their, their customers. Certainly. And if you're a trafficker and you're, main, if you're making millions of dollars, you don't mind if 100,000 people die out of a million. Right. right. You're still going to make enormous profit. Exactly. Now, fentanyl's 
cheaper than heroin, right? Because you don't need as much of it. Fentanyl is, is much cheaper. I don't have the numbers, but uh, you know, a kilogram of the, and you only need a handful of precursor chemicals, which you can buy from the Chinese companies, pharmaceutical industrial industry, very cheap. So it's very cheap to make, as opposed to a kilo of heroin, you know, the overhead, the cost, cocaine, methamphetamine, et cetera. Understood. You also mentioned in the email that you sent um, just the idea of educating parents on some of these things. What are some of your thoughts on that? Since we know we have parents who have either lost children or who are afraid of losing their children that listen to the podcast. I think, you know, when it comes down to the, to the, uh, this new paradigm of drug user, right? People who use pills, people who aren't classic, what I would call classic traditional drug users. They're individuals who take Percocets, Xanax, prescription pills for, for a number of reasons, right? That's a new paradigm, which is really, it's, it's very difficult to support with, uh, drug rehabilitation, um, law enforcement, because these are the individuals, the students, the young adults cramming for a test who are going to go buy a, a Xanax from somebody that turns out to be fentanyl and they die. Or, or high school kids, right, going to, co- going to high school and buying pills at parties and that sort of thing. Here's my thing. The new normal uh, can kill you. Because when I was growing up, I go to a party. I never smoked or drank, but I had friends who smoked marijuana, who drank beer, who, who popped pills from their parents' cabinet. And the next day they had a hangover. You do that today and you die. Right. So the new normal will kill you. But my mother, you know, I credit her with, uh, you know, at that time, it seemed to be a draconian way to raise kids. But uh, I remember I had some argument with my mother. I came home from a party late. I was 16 years old, came in like two o'clock in the morning. She was sitting up and I just went to my room, and closed my door. Right. Didn't want to talk to her. Next thing I know, she's uh, she's down in the basement bringing up some tools, takes my door off the hinge. Oh. And she's like, this is my house. And if you think you can come in and out when you want, you're wrong. And by the way, here's a suitcase. She starts packing my clothes. I'm like, what are you doing? She says, well, you're a big man. Uh, you think you can come and go when you want? You don't have to listen to me. Here's your stuff. Go live with your friends. And I was like, oh, well, mom, you're overreacting, right? This <laughs> is, And basically, as she's dragging me to the front door, and I'm crying at 16, hey, I understand. From that day forward, my mother had no problem with me, right? No problem at all. I think parents today, and of course, we didn't have the internet when I was growing up. We didn't have social media, iPhones, and, and Facebook. This is a double-edged sword. Technology has, has helped society, and it has harmed society. And I think parents, in my opinion, I don't have kids, but I have a lot of friends who have kids. They try too hard to be the friend of the parent, their kids. Right? They want to be their, their big brother, their big sister. Parents have to get back to parenting. They need to know what's on their cell phone, who are they talking to on social media, you know, if they say they're going over to Susie's house with party, they need to know Susie's parents and make that call. There needs to be networking within the parent community to, to guard their kids. Hey, what kind of prescription drugs do you have in your cabinet? Are those drugs locked up? You know, where are your kids? Do they know where their kids are when they say they're going to be somewhere? A lot yeah. of parents don't know that. Then their kids, as kids will do, they're going to do what they want. because They think they know more than we do as parents. But now they're dying. Yep. There's no opportunity to wake up with a hangover. Yep. Uh, you simply die at a party, and then that's it. And parents are wondering, well, what happened? I had no idea. Yep. That's good. We had, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a gentleman on the other day, and he said, you know, he said, parents, you have an absolute right to go in and search your child's room. And if you find air freshener under the bed, 
that chances are that that air freshener isn't because the kid's been passing gas, but it's been because he's been smoking something that he doesn't want you to smell. And just, I think parents just have to be proactive because it's so dangerous now because they can't be with the child 24-7. They can't be with their teenager 24-7. And if they haven't laid in the education that your mother laid in with you and, you know, they haven't really established some of the ground rules within the family, I think, you know, they, they run that risk. And I don't know of a single parent that wants to lose their child to addiction. I mean, we've interviewed several and it's just absolutely tragic when absolutely. it happens. And of course, hindsight is at least twenty twenty. So, you know, I think you make some very, very good points. Michael, the only thing I would say is that I, I hope that Maybe some of those machines could maybe go down to Mexico and prevent some of the chemicals from there coming in. I don't well, know. Well, DEA is working with, with the Mexican government. Of course, the, the political situation in Mexico is not the best for law enforcement, high levels of corruption. Um, there's really no, in my opinion, there's no desire of the Mexican government to really intercede um, with these precursor chemicals because it would be so easy to do, right? The, also, mm-hmm. the problem is China. China won't enforce uh, these, go after these, com- these companies who are shipping these dual purpose chemicals saying, well, they're illegal. It's not our responsibility, right? So there's this willful blindness going on within the chemical industry to look the other way. Um, There's willful blindness in the parts of governments in Central and South America to look the other way because drug production is generating millions, billions of dollars. Yep. Yep. They got to follow the money. That's kind of always the way. Exactly. But, um, you know, in terms of parents, parents are the last line of defense. Yep. In this fentanyl surge, no one else can solve. Law enforcement can't solve this. Um, funding can't solve this. This is a, an issue in the household that has to be reevaluated with the family and the community. Yep, I agree. Michael, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, I think your story is fascinating. I think all the work you've done is tremendous, and I know you're going to do more. And thank you also for the great advice about parents, because I think, you know, it's unfortunate, but a lot of parents have to hear it. I was very strict on my boys. I was very strict. And yeah, you know, when we were young, you know, marijuana came into being, but it wasn't the marijuana of today. And we were very, very strict about it. And we may not have been the most popular parents, but too bad. Yeah, but they're still alive. Exactly. They're still right. alive. Either one of them drink alcohol, do any drugs whatsoever. Exactly. So there you go. And that's really the end goal. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Great interview. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you for listening. I hope you were as fascinated by that interview as I was. Um, not too many people, I think, are willing to jump into the jungles in South America and go after the producers of the various drugs. Um, I think we need about 100 million more of Mr. Brown, and we also need 100 million of these machines, and we also need to get rid of the political, uh, okay, now I have to make this podcast explicit, the political bullshit that gets in the way of actually saving lives. It's so not okay, so not acceptable. And yeah, so there you go. You could write to your congressman or your representative and say, hey, how about checking out Rigaku? I think that's how he said it, R-I-G-A-K-U, and their device. And, you know, let's start being more proactive about this whole addiction pandemic. In the meantime, 
if you are a parent and you are concerned about your child possibly being on drugs or you know they're on drugs and you need help, reach out. There are so many organizations that are there to help you, help you understand what's going on, help you deal with it. You know, our sponsor, Newman Interventions, that's what Bobby does is go into families and do an intervention to get the person into treatment. That is oftentimes not something you can do yourself. So we've got resources for you. You just have to reach out. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back with another interview next week. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.